So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. Fast-track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash StarTalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash StarTalk today. We are living in an incredible age. I mean, Hubble getting above the Earth's atmosphere, we were able to see things we could never see before. And same thing is happening with James Webb. It's opened up a whole new wavelength regime that we didn't have access to. So we're learning new things. It's what makes science fun. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk, Cosmic Queries Edition. I got with me my co-host, Matt Kirshen. Matt, how you doing, man? I'm very good. How are you? Yeah, you still got your Probably Science podcast rolling along? Still still got that going. We're, we're still trucking on. Uh, ne- next time you've got something big to promote and you need that 0.0001% bump. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The Christian bump, door, I guess you call yeah, it. Yeah, our doors are open. Our <laughs> microphone is is free and ready to go. I'm going to wait until you change the name to Definitely Science, and then maybe I'll, I'll come on. We We're can do it as a stuff, one-off when you're know. on the show. We can do it for you. <laughs> so, Matt, guess what? We're going to talk about the expanding universe today. I, lo- I, I love these episodes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the world's experts on this is someone... I came of age with. We were like in graduate school, like at the same time and went to all the same conferences. I'm delighted to catch back up with her, Wendy Friedman. Wendy, welcome to Star Talk. Thanks very much, Neil. It's great to see you. Yeah, we we were uh, young a long time ago. (laughs) Everyone was younger a long time ago. I think it works for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That could be one of the questions. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So, Wendy, I, I got in my notes here. You are the John and Marion Sullivan University Professor of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Chicago. As we all know, or many of us know, it's an institution with a storied past in figuring out what was going on in the early universe, especially mixing our understanding of particle physics with what went on in the Big Bang. And you devoted your life to the expansion of the universe, what role dark energy has played in it. Galaxy evolution is delight to have you on Star Talk. I just want to put that out there. And so, so, Lenny, remind everyone what the Hubble constant is. Just, you know, we've heard of it, and, like, what is it? Because we've got Hubble, the guy, the dude, the, the, the astronomer, then we have the Hubble telescope, and then we have the Hubble constant. So what's going on? Yeah, all Hubble, same Hubble, Edwin Hubble. And uh, <laughs> Edwin Hubble is the man who discovered that the universe is expanding. And the rate at which the universe is expanding today is a quantity that we call the Hubble constant. 
And what Hubble discovered was that when he went and made measurements of galaxies, this was in the 1920s, and we didn't know at that time whether our own Milky Way galaxy was the entire extent of the universe or whether there might be other galaxies like the Milky Way. And so we didn't know how far away the objects were, something that astronomers called nebulae, and Hubble set out to study the nebulae. And what he discovered was that they were outside the Milky Way itself. There are many more galaxies in the universe, about 100 billion of them. And then he went on to discover that not only are there other galaxies, but they are space is expanding and galaxies are, are going along with that expansion of space. And the rate at which that's happening today is what we call the Hubble constant after Edwin Hubble. And it gives us a measure of both the size of the universe and its age. So it's a, it's a very important, it's a fundamental parameter in cosmology. Well, you keep saying it's value today. That means it was had a different value yesterday and it'll have a different value tomorrow. So why the hell are you calling it a constant? <laughs> it, it, well, it's confusing because the universe is evolving and it did have a different expansion rate in the past. It will have a different expansion rate in the future because it's actually speeding up. But what we measure today locally in, in the universe around us, in the Milky Way or in another galaxy near us, we will measure the same expansion rate at the current time. So the Hubble constant is the Hubble expansion rate today. Our time. Okay. Our time. Constant in our time. Yeah, you got it. Now, if I remember correctly, because I'm that old to remember it, when the Hubble telescope came around, one of the primary goals of it was to nail down the Hubble constant and therefore the age of the universe and the size of the universe, which was highly unknown at the time with warring factions weren't even agreeing within a factor of two. And you spearheaded that, if I remember correctly. So, so what so the value you got back then, has that been sustained over the years? Have better measurements improved on it? Yeah, so, yeah, it has. And, and, and you're correct. So when Hubble was launched, and it was in fact uh, the, the project that the Hubble telescope was built to solve. It was the umbrella project. Of course, there are many things astronomers wanted to do, but this factor of two got in the way of everything. We didn't know how old the universe was. We didn't know how far away galaxies were, so we didn't know how bright they were. We didn't know their masses, etc. It was, it was a huge problem. And so the size of Hubble's primary mirror was set to allow us to measure a certain kind of star that lets us measure distances, the same kind of star that Edwin Hubble himself used called the Cepheid variable. And so the size of the mirror was, was uh, not decreased. Budget considerations made the telescope smaller than originally envisaged, but it allowed us to discover Cepheids in our nearby cluster called the Virgo cluster. And so, yeah, we had a key project, which I was a scientific leader of, co-led with Jeremy Mould and, and Rob Kennicott, and we measured the Hubble constant to an accuracy of 10% and got around this factor of two, resolved this problem that had been pressing for many decades. And that has stood the test of time. So people argued between values of 50 and 100 for this Hubble constant. We got a value of 72 at the time with an uncertainty of 10%. And ever since then, the, the value has stayed very close to that, um, maybe 73, 74 now, when it's based on Cepheid variables. So you, you said it's, it's speeding up. Is, was, is, has that always been a known thing, or is the fact that it's speeding up 
a, a new piece of information. The fact that it's speeding up was came uh, into uh, a point of being able to be measured around the turn of, uh, of the millennium. And um, it's, it's interesting. So what, what's happened is that not only is the universe expanding, as Edwin Hubble told us, but it's also speeding up in its expansion with time. And th that's something that actually was allowed in Einstein's general theory of relativity, but Einstein rejected it because there was, one, no evidence that the universe was expanding at all. Uh, and so he, in fact, added something into his equations that, that forced the universe to be uh, static. And he put a term in called the cosmological constant to force the universe to be static. When Hubble discovered the expansion, Einstein is reputed to have said that this was his biggest wonder because he could have predicted the expansion. But this cosmological constant sort of came and went over time as people thought they found evidence for it. But it wasn't until the late 1990s when it became possible to observe very distant supernovae, very bright explosions in the distant universe that showed that the universe was actually speeding up in its expansion and not slowing down. And that had been the expectation that because of gravity, the universe would eventually slow down in its expansion over time. And instead, it, it's speeding up. Because of the presence of galaxies and matter in the universe, that, and gravity, of course, is an attractive force, that the expectation was that the universe would decelerate, not accelerate. So that, that's a new discovery in the last couple of, of decades. So, Wendy, what you're saying is Einstein's biggest blunder was saying that that was his biggest blunder. <laughs> so that, what, <laughs> well, when you're Einstein, you, you get to... <laughs> It, you know, a Nobel Prize was given for that discovery. When you're Einstein, one of your biggest blunders can turn out to be one of your most important scientific contributions. Right. If your blunder led to a Nobel Prize by others discovering your blunder, right? That's that's completely crazy. Einstein, as badass as you can get, uh, uh, in 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 his I day. I feel like I feel like one day uh, a blunder of mine could lead to maybe a Nobel Prize for medicine. Really. Yeah, I mean, like, for someone else. Like, someone else, like, oh, I guess you can take that out of okay. a human. Or, okay. uh, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> who, who knew that we could get someone to survive oh, I that? I see, there's, I see. Uh, there's yeah, ways. No, I, I wouldn't, like, aim for that, though. I think that sounds dangerous. Oh, <laughs> uh, you never aim. So, 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 Matt, you have, you got, you got questions for us, right? It's a cosmic query. I certainly yeah, do, yeah. yeah. We've got a question solicited from our Patreon fan base, and they have exclusive access to this line of questioning. And we just said, we're, we're, did, we got Wendy, yeah. Dr. Wendy with us, <laughs> and we are going to talk about the expansion of the universe. So let's do it. Uh, yeah, so Fadi Hayek from Indianapolis, for, first, before asking any scientific questions, wants to know the official title of me. Oh. Ch Chuck is Lord Nice. Uh, do we I need have... someone official to... said Lord Count? No, no, we'll, we'll work on it. We'll Thank you for that. We'll work on it. Yes. It's Yeah, it needs, needs to be mm -hmm. decided. And then... On a more scientific and more appropriate basis for our guest, how come the universe is expanding faster than the speed of light, but galaxies, stars, and planets are not in a hurry to move away from each other? I mean, the speed of expansion is not only mind-boggling, but in a way supernatural. It should be perceivable. Ooh. I'm not entirely sure what Fadi is getting at there. Yeah, but, so uh, what's up with that, Wendy? So I think we probably heard that Albert Einstein told us that nothing could travel faster than the speed of light. And what Einstein told us was that no information can go faster than the speed of light. But there is, in fact, no speed limit for the universe itself. 
And so that's quite true. There are parts of the universe beyond where we can see light uh, that has traveled to us since the, the age of the universe, the time that the universe has been here. Um, and we don't know anything about those because no information can come to us. Uh, the universe is uh, expanding faster than the, than the speed of light. And so, so, so no violation. No, no violation. There's, there's no yeah, violation. Yeah. So we'll never, there, there is physically no way to ever see those stars now, and they're basically gone. They are, they're gone, and they're getting further away from anything that we can ever access. That's right. They're beyond our horizon. We cannot, we will not get information from them. Not ever. Yes, that's correct. That's, not that's ever. kind of sad. That's kind of sad. It is kind of sad. Well, and in fact, we're living at a time where we can see you know, many, many hundreds of billions of galaxies, but there will be a time when, except for our own local neighborhood, the, maybe the Virgo cluster and other clusters of galaxies near us, and this comes to the second part of the question, which is that galaxies that are near to us, are they're interacting gravitationally. All galaxies are, you know, the force of gravity falls off as the distance squared. And so the galaxies that are near us are gravitationally, we're gravitationally bound. And so even with this acceleration, that force is strong enough to keep them um, in our observable universe. But if we came back in uh, 65 billion years, we wouldn't see all the galaxies in the, in the sky that we see, assuming that we understand enough now about what is termed dark energy that is causing the acceleration. That's a separate question because we don't yet understand the nature of, of the dark energy. So, so you, you say that the, the local ones won't escape past this horizon, is it? If you go far, far enough in the future, is that possible that that would happen or would that never happen? Will we always be able to see that this stuff that's in our immediate? No. Well, things like, for example, we have in our own local group of galaxies, the Andromeda galaxy, which if you go to a dark part of the sky, more and more rare on Earth right now, but you can actually see Andromeda with the naked eye. But we will eventually collide with Andromeda billions of years from now. Uh, it, it, we, we, will <laughs> we, we will be fine. We... Um, stars are so far apart that we're not going to have a collision with our sun, but the two galaxies will merge, and that's been happening over time. Galaxies have been um, plunging into one another and becoming, uh, you know, larger and larger. So, no, the, the galaxies that are nearest to us, and of course not ones that are, are sufficiently far away that they won't fall into us, but they still, we have enough gravitational attraction that we will at some point... Uh, look out at the universe and not see most of what we see today. But I'm talking tens of billions of years in the future. So, so this isn't a situation where we need to send like Bruce Willis up in a rocket to deflect the galaxy to stop it from crashing into us. No, right? it is that situation. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Okay, cool. <laughs> we're we're designing that mission now, flying two space shuttles simultaneously into space. <laughs> we we got this. We totally have this. That's good. But to it's, know. That's it's, a relief. It's really interesting now because it's possible to study the evolution of, of galaxies and their interactions over time via gravity. And so what we think of as distinct objects have been trading stars and plunging through each other and, and eventually merging. That's just been part of our cosmic past. It's, it's, a, it's a very uh, dynamic place out there. Yeah, in fact, Matt, we, for a while we called it the mergers and acquisitions uh, part of <laughs> modern astrophysics. And we have inflation and all sorts of things. Yeah, we bore. Yeah, all manner of cultural reference there. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, more with my good friend, Professor Wendy Friedman, one of the world's experts on the expanding universe.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Hi, I'm Chris Cohen from Haworth, New Jersey, and I support Star Talk on Patreon. Please enjoy this episode of Star Talk Radio with your and my favorite personal astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. We're back, Star Talk Cosmic Queries. This is the Expanding Universe Edition. You got to do that every now and then just to check up on it. I got Matt Kirshen as my co-host. Hey. Very cool, Matt. Matt, where do we find you on social media? Uh, I'm at Matt Kirshen on Twitter, at Matt underscore Kirshen on Instagram, and then Probably Science is my podcast. Excellent. Kirshen, K-I-R-S-H-E-N. If you just type English comedian Matt K-I and then bang the keyboard, Google finds me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and, and so, Wendy, we got more questions for you. All right, let's see. Let's see what we've got. Matt, give it to us. Yeah, Jeremy Green from Nevada says, "Love the show uh, with the James Webb Space Telescope finding galaxies that should not be existing that soon after the Big Bang. How is that going to change thoughts in cosmology and how the early universe formed?" Okay, let me back that up a second and come back to you, Wendy. Here, Wendy, why it should there be a time in the early universe where we don't expect galaxies? Like, what's going on? So, in the very earliest moments of the universe, we had of course, the Big Bang, radiation from the Big Bang couldn't reach us early on. There was a, a very hot plasma, and it was too hot even for hydrogen atoms to form. So the photons from the Big Bang would hit the electrons in this plasma, and, and, and we don't have any information there. At about uh, 380,000 years after the Big Bang, the expansion had proceeded to the point where the temperature had cooled enough that you could form hydrogen. And after that, the photons from the Big Bang could stream out and we can detect them 
today. They're all around. The background radiation has been detected from the Big Bang. Then with telescopes like Hubble, we can peer back into the universe. And with Hubble, we can go maybe 12 billion years back in time. And we could see tiny little smudges that Hubble could barely resolve, and you you couldn't get detailed information on those. This is 12 billion out of nearly 14 billion. So that's pretty yeah, far back. So I mean, we, that's, that's, that's pretty far back. That's pretty good, right? 12 out of 14. It, it's very, very good. Mm-hmm. But there's a, a region of t- a space of time that we have actually referred to as the Dark Ages, which is the period between when we can first detect photons from the Big Bang, 380,000 years after the Big Bang, and maybe 12 billion years ago. And, and we have no information about that time. So one of the main scientific goals of the James Webb is to study the Dark Ages and to see galaxies forming, witnessing directly the first galaxies to form. So we know they're there. We're in a galaxy. We can see these faint smudges, but we have no information or had no information about that process. And that's what's exciting about James Webb is we're opening up a whole new window uh, and we needed an infrared telescope to do that. So, But aren't these galaxies, weren't they found in the dark ages? I mean, you wouldn't expect that, right? These new galaxies we're finding, yes, they seem to have formed very early on after after the Big Bang. And, so that, and you're cool, and you're okay with that? I'm okay with that. I mean, I'm okay with whatever the universe did. I'm not going to tell the universe what to do. Oh, good. They <laughs> think, you know, that's our job is to go out and measure it. And, you know, I think that's one right. of the reasons why I was excited about James Webb is we have lots of theories for how galaxy formation would happen. And, and you know, we're pretty certain about those things. But then you actually go and look and you learn something new. What we learn, I'm not sure yet. I think we have some more surprises yet in store. And in a way, that's the whole point of the telescope. Yes. Yes. And and so right now, there's this, I think, excitement that maybe galaxies, very massive galaxies, form very early on. And our current theories tell us there was no time to do that. You can't possibly have galaxies that are that massive that early. But I think we need to explore a lot of other questions about, you know, what were the stars like that formed early on? Are they the same as the ones that are forming today? What was, is there dust in the early universe that we don't know about? Were the properties different? Was the star formation rate different? The way that they formed, the distribution of masses. So there's a lot of exploring I think we need to do. So you'll see headlines like, you know, the Big Bang is dead and um, standard cosmology is broken. And I, I think we need to just, slow down a little and and really understand what we're seeing, which is really interesting, but we don't yet know, I think, what it means. So you really should just get back to work on that right now. <laughs> Look, if why you are you doing this bothering podcast? me, Neil, I'd be working on it. <laughs> Sorry, you're losing precious minutes here solving the universe. Well, well that does also, that perfectly plays into a listener, Dylan, uh, who asked, is is the breaking news? Is all the breaking news stories related to James Webb Space Telescope findings hoaxes, or all the fi- or are the findings challenging some core ideas in astrophysics and astronomy? Well, I think you know we are challenging ideas in astronomy and astrophysics, and I think you know what, whenever you get really new information, how you process that, how you get big enough samples, how you understand how things might have been different at a different time in a different environment. It takes time to settle those things out. So we're at the really exciting part, which is, hey, we don't understand this. What's going on here? But in terms of 
of ga- gaining understanding. I think that will take some time, but that's part of the fun of doing science at the forefront. It's and, and just just to clarify, when scientists on the forefront find something they don't understand, this is an exciting day. Yes, it's not a day to worry. It's like, oh my gosh, this doesn't fit. Let's find out why. And so, but the press makes it out like we're all just sitting there with our legs up on the desk basking in our mastery of the universe. And then we get jostled by some result and we're on the floor trying to refine the drawing board. <laughs> Just you know. screwing up, ripping up paper. Yeah, we're not doing the whole painting over <laughs> yet. <laughs> right, right. And regardless, Wendy's always at the drawing board. That's the... <laughs> That's the point here. Oh, yeah, I'm sort of envisaging just Wendy just furious punching through a straw boater <laughs> and just stamping on the floor every time. Every time news telescope findings come through. Just yeah, no, no. It's, no, ruined, it's ruined, hard not to be. You. We are living in an incredible age. I mean, Hubble getting above the Earth's atmosphere, we were able to see things we could never see before. Um, and same thing is happening with James Webb. It's opened up a whole new wavelength regime that we didn't have access to, not in the same, not with the same sensitivity or resolution. And so we're learning new things. It's what makes science fun. And I think, you know, there's a tendency, partly because of when we go to school, when you learn science, there's, you know, you're given a problem and then you can look up the answer in the back of the book. And with mm-hmm. the universe, there's no back of the book to look up the answers. We have to... <laughs> we have to observe, you know, read the universe, observe the universe experiment to to um to see what it's done, but that we don't know the answer when we're when we're looking when we when we first get new data. But that really is part you know, of the, the closest excitement. thing we have to the back of the book, you show it to a colleague and then <laughs> and they'll say, does this look right to you? You know, I don't know. Let, let me get the somebody, let me get Susie. Look, does it look right to you? Not nah, you messed up, Wendy. You forgot to carry the two. You know, we got our version of this check of this 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 checking process are our colleagues who yeah. and and if they're doing their job, it is their obligation to find out where we messed up. Yes. All right. They're yes. not our friend if they say, "Oh, let's not tell her." You know. <laughs> no, it's it's one of the very unusual things about the nature of science is that mm-hmm. you're you're always trying to find what's wrong and what we've done before. You know, how did we look at this wrong? What can we do to improve our measurements or yeah? Check our right. theories. Right, yeah. right. All right, Matt, keep it coming. All right. Biren Amin asks a question from Biren's 17-year-old son who is taking AP physics and wants to be an engineer. This question also comes Wait from... Wait a minute. Or- if you're 17, they, they have their own account. They could, like, fork up the $5 a month for Patreon. <laughs> so we'll, we'll take it this case, all right? <laughs> this is, yeah, this give is him a pass. Yeah. I'll get a whole pass here. He's interested. Okay. Uh, what has been the most challenging aspect of your work trying to understand the age of the universe? along with using the James Webb Space Telescope to ascertain your research interests. And big fan of the show, I love space slash cosmos. Thank you. Nice, nice. So, Wendy, do you know enough math? Do you ever have to go back into the math book? Uh, is all the physics, have, did you get that in graduate school? Is there more physics you have to check in on? What, what are some of your challenges, just as a professional on that frontier? Yeah, I, you know, I, I would answer it in two ways. I mean, part of it is the the theory or understand physical understanding of the nature of the universe, which has changed since I was a graduate student, since you were a graduate student, Neil. And, and at that point, evidence for dark matter was just becoming, starting to be taken seriously. Um, we hadn't yet learned about the acceleration of the universe and dark energy. The idea of inflation was just beginning. Uh, so cosmology has changed a lot 
and you have to keep up with the changes. But there are real mysteries. We, we don't know what is causing the acceleration. Uh, there's a Nobel Prize waiting for someone there. We don't yet know what the nature of dark matter is, although there are experiments all over the world trying to discover the nature of dark matter. And, and so th there are just a lot of open-ended questions right now. And, and right now we're even asking questions about whether the standard model, which is a model now that has dark energy and dark matter that comprises about 95% of the universe. And we don't know what it is. So it's a, there are a lot of open-ended questions right now. So the other is the experimental side and, and what is, you know, what are the challenges there? And when you're making measurements, as we've gone along with time, we talked about the factor of two uncertainty in the Hubble constant when I began, then we got to 10%. Now we've been able to get to 5%, I would say, confidently. And there are some who say we've even reached 1%. But when you're trying to increase your accuracy, you're dealing with Again, objects, astronomical objects that are astronomical distances, tens of light years to hundreds of light years to hundreds of millions of light years away, we're using the properties of stars to gauge distances. And stars can be complex. They have dust in their atmospheres. They're located in regions with dust. And the farther away we're making the measurements, the more crowded those stars become because you only have a finite resolution of your detector. And so there are uncertainties that can creep into your measurements, and we constantly have to be checking our own measurements to see how we can improve them. So those are real challenges, and they're both from a theoretical perspective in the field of trying to understand what we're observing, and then from a, an observer's point of view, trying to make measurements and increasing our accuracy and being able to do so. So not not all data are created equal, and so you have to you've got to know your data. Otherwise, you, you could be you know garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, right? and it's been a history of the subject that yeah. You know, so why did Hubble Hubble measured a value for his constant of five hundred? We're now you know sort of at a factor of eight different than we measured today. And it had to do with problems in the photographic detectors he used, the fact he didn't know about dust and other kinds of issues like that. And, and we're still confronting those. And the higher accuracy we need to confront our theories, the harder it is to make these measurements. And so we always have to remember that and keep testing ourselves and, and, and really trying to get more and more uh, accurate data. And, it's, and keep in mind, he, he found a phenomenon, even though he got the wrong number to measure it. Right? That's I mean, right. it's an interesting fact here. You don't say, oh, he's way off, so therefore forget everything he did. No, the, the, the phenomenon is still real, even though his measurement of the phenomenon was very far off. Yeah, right? no, so, he made a remarkable discovery, and it's clearly in the data. You can see that there is a relationship between velocity and distance that you know, bears his name, this Hubble constant, the slope of that relation. But mm -hmm. he didn't have the ability to make accurate measurements. And, and then again, even when we got better detectors, it, we had to wait for Hubble to get above the Earth's atmosphere because of this question of resolution. And now James Webb has four times the resolution at the wavelengths we're observing at. And we can see now these Cepheids in our James Webb Space Telescope data that pop out of these beautiful images that are completely smeared out and faint in Hubble's images. So each time we get a new facility, we get new capability and, and, uh, and we can do better. Mm -hmm. So astronomers never stop. 
We just nope. bigger, better, <laughs> more, more questions. More. Yeah, there are more questions to answer. More, more, more. So the seventeen-year-old right. out there, we've left a lot for you to do. <laughs> there you go. Good. So Matt, give me give me another one before the break. Okay. Well, this is one of those questions where I don't know. I don't know how you begin to give an answer to this one. So I love these sort of slightly esoteric ones, I guess. But okay, this one's for you, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> You, you can't pre-punt pre a question to me. That's not fair. <laughs> yeah. All right. Gavin Bamba from North Vancouver. So also says, please visit Vancouver. And is our universe young, middle-aged, or old? How much time does it have left to exist? Ooh, I like that. I no, know Wendy can, take that, Wendy can take that. But we actually have to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to find out whether w Wendy thinks the universe is young, old, decrepit, or what. <laughs> it's... <laughs> on Star Talk Cosmic Queries, the Expanding Universe Edition. We're back, Star Talk Cosmic Queries. Expanding Universe Edition with Wendy Friedman, a professor of astronomy and astrophysics at the University of Chicago. Uh, Wendy, how do we find, uh, do you have any social media footprint of your own? Not of my own. The University of Chicago has a footprint. They have one. So so you don't have one. So that means you actually are in the lab, do <laughs> you're, you're actually being scientific. You think you're kidding. I don't know. I don't, you know, I have enough things on my plate to do i yeah productive <laughs> oh my gosh okay if only if only i had that willpower yep yep <laughs> yep, yep so we left off who was the person who asked that question matt that was gavin bamba from vancouver, from vancouver. saying is our universe young middle-aged or old and i guess you can't just say age is just a number when it's your job to calculate that number to ever increasing <laughs> levels of accuracy <laughs> so some years ago there was a book called The Five Ages of the Universe. And I think it was by Fred Adams and Greg Laughlin, which was a, a follow-on to what uh, the physicist, Freeman, the late physicist Freeman Dyson had written some years earlier, where you can think of ages of the universe as occasions where pretty much the same thing is happening. And then something, like, almost geologically, right? So the same thing is happening, and then it changes, and something different is happening, and then it changes, right? And so... Uh, the very early universe behaved in a certain way, and then we had another. So we're in an age of the universe. My question to you is, following up on the, what Matt had just read, how long will we continue kind of this way? And will we become something else later on? And how later on would that be? Yeah, it, it's an interesting question because we're actually living in an inflection point, and it's an interesting one. It, it appears to be a coincidence that we happen to be living at the time where this dark energy that we're referring to is just becoming the dominant component in the universe. So in the early universe, first radiation dominated, then matter. That was one of the eras, right? That was and one the, of the, mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. And and now the universe is just starting to be dominated by the accelerating phase, by 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 the dark energy. And so before, before we were talking about the existence of dark energy, it was possible to calculate an age for the universe and you could predict with some certainty how long um, the universe would 
uh, you could say the universe, for example, would be infinite, or if it had enough matter, it would uh, recollapse. But now that there's this dark energy component, we can't say for certain what the next phase will be because we don't know what the fundamental physics is that is driving the acceleration. So will there be a new phase? I think that's just something that um, either uh, some new theory could predict, um, but there isn't a theory right now that, that could explain Wendy, it. Wendy, we brought you on the show to give us answers. Don't tell us how much we don't know. <laughs> what good? Why, why do... <laughs> I, you know, it's one of the things that often happens in science, right? The more you learn, the more questions that you raise. Yeah, and, there it is. You know, this there has been is. called, you know, one of the most the you know, fundamental mystery in cosmology. It's one of the biggest unknowns in science right now. Mm -hmm. It really is a mystery. We we don't understand it. Okay. All science right. does not have all the answers. <laughs> if, if that's my answer. <laughs> yeah, I've heard people say this is this is a mystery. Not even the scientists know. Therefore, it's aliens or something, right? They're, they quickly go to some conclusion that because the, the fact that a scientist doesn't have the answer is their measure that it must be something so exotic and so mystical and magical rather than just, no, we're just, we got top people working on it. Just chill out. No, we'll it is there. mystical and magical. And, and what's happened in the last couple of decades is there's so much new data that have you know come from so many different directions measuring how fast galaxies are moving, measuring the radiation from the Big Bang, are measuring the expansion. And yet the basic model is holding up. Yeah. You know, there are perhaps cracks and we'll learn something from where those cracks appear. But overall, there's been tremendous progress. Right. But yeah, there are things we don't understand. All right. All right, Matt, give me some more. All right. I'm, I'm combining two questions on this because that's always fun to do when two people ask things that are playing in the same poll. I still want to hear who asked each of the two questions. Oh, very much okay, so. Good. Because mm -hmm. firstly, Adam Paradise, who is a longtime fan and first-time patron, so definitely oh. giving you a shout-out. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the club, Adam. Says, uh, and is finally happy to have a question. What happens to black holes during slash after the big rip? Do they have enough energy to resist the rip? And if so, do they enact any force on the rest of the universe that maybe wasn't large enough to matter before universal expansion slowed down? Oh, I love it. And says thank you for all your time, and then Gina Martin from North Carolina and says thank you for all the all, all the Stella all you do for the Stella Minor community at large. Says Adam, and then Gina from North Carolina says I recently heard Neil on a previous episode explaining the Big Rip and how the expansion of the universe would eventually cause matter on an atomic level to be ripped or stretched apart. Would that not cause nuclear fission reactions or explosions similar to Big Bang and create a whole new universe? So let's get let's get so, to the, the horse's mouth here, Wendy. What is the latest scholarship on the Big Rip? And because it's to me, it's the most terrifying thing I've ever learned and and read about. So, but but you're you're in the middle of it. So tell us what you're tell us what you're allowed to say. <laughs> I think you know. At the, I think the thing to say is at present there's no evidence that there's going to be a big rip. I think there's nothing that we could point to um, in terms of evidence that would suggest that there's going to be a big rip. Now you can't say that with absolute certainty because again there are things we don't understand yet about the evolution of the universe. But but wait wait but if you don't if we if you confessed you didn't know we don't know about dark energy and what's causing it, but we can measure it. Isn't the measurement sufficient to say, if this keeps up, 
what's going to happen? It's just a simple sort of extrapolation. That's not allowed. You don't. You guys don't do that behind closed doors. Yeah, you know, I think we have to be careful with extrapolations, and and I think with time, the situation will become clearer. But we're talking about times. It's important to say that are so far in the distant future that uh, I personally am not going to spend a lot of my time worrying about it. I'm not going to worry about the sun exhausting hydrogen in its core yet. Matt, Matt that's I, I, I smell denial. I think Wendy's in denial. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to think, think about it. More pressing issues to <laughs> no, worry about. I don't want to think about it. We have. More information. <laughs> Sorry, but go ahead. Let tell us what's going to happen, Neil. <laughs> Speculate she, away. She's in denial, Matt. It's clear. I see the signs are <laughs> obvious. No, no, uh, uh, Wendy, you're you're being very practically. What you're saying, not to put words in your mouth, but I think what you're saying is that it is sufficiently speculative to not devote your hard-earned time, lab time, and telescope time on that problem relative to others that are less speculative and more uh, tangibly answerable. Is that a fair characterization of what you just said? That's fair. Okay. Well, since, since you mentioned time, Liam Corcoran from Rhode Island, I hope I pronounced that correctly, said, if time is relative, how do we accurately predict the age of the universe? Would the age we predict here on Earth differ from an age predicted from another point in space, for example, near a black hole? Yeah, I'd love that. Yeah, Wendy, who, who keeps time in the universe? You're telling me how old the universe is. Would the black hole agree with that? Well, we'd have to go ask the black hole, I suppose. <laughs> but but so what we are doing in a very practical sense is that it, you know we can measure how far away galaxies are at the current time. We can measure the speed at which they are receding from us. The universe is expanding. And uh, so we can measure, as I said earlier, the Hubble constant, which is the expansion rate at the current time. And then it's it's not unlike you know a movie. You run it in reverse, right? Except that you use in language of mathematics Einstein's general theory of relativity, upon which the Big Bang theory is based, and uh, and and then calculate what the age, how long the universe has been expanding, given the amount of matter in the universe and given the amount of this dark energy you can then calculate what the age is. And we get an age of about 13.8 billion years. So it's a very straightforward... Yeah, but who's watch, whose clock are you using? Why, why is your clock the right clock and not the clock that was around? At, if I had a clock in the early universe, is it measuring the time that you're measuring now? The rate of change of time? I mean, is that... So what essentially Einstein's theory tells us is that... Um, we ha So it, it, anywhere in the universe, because of this uniform expansion, anywhere we made this measurement, if I go to the Andromeda galaxy, if I go to another galaxy, another galaxy, another galaxy, I would look around and I would see all galaxies receding from us. I would appear to be the middle of that expansion and I would measure the same expansion okay. rate. All right. So macroscopically, that's how that works. Because the question talked about the time around a black hole. We all saw that famous scene in the movie Interstellar where... The guys are waiting for the folks down on the on the black hole planet, and they come back 15 minutes later by their time, but like 20 years or something had elapsed on the orbiting spacecraft waiting for them. And so I think that's the source of the questioning that's coming onto the table now. Uh, whose clock are we using? But if the if the really weird messed up time is right in the vicinity of black holes, then and black holes are just dotting the universe, that's not the clock you want to use. 
for any of this. That's right. right. So in, in the vicinity of a black hole, when you have strong gravity, you know, moving clocks are gonna, are gonna run slow. When you're a strong gravitational field, Einstein tells us that things work differently. Right. And you're precisely right. You don't wanna make measurements macroscopic, you know, on average of the universe, which is a giant place. Right, right. Uh, you don't wanna be using these very high density regions to make your measurements wrong place. Matt, did you see, for those who were only viewing, uh, Wendy extended her arms to gesture how big the universe is. I think that's <laughs> that is so quaint. <laughs> Can't help it. I definitely use my hands when the I. The universe talk. is this big. <laughs> Whatever your your arms. Did you get the point? Arms reaches. <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel sorry for the audio only people who are still struggling to picture it. But uh, <laughs> this is well, just picture Wendy extending her hands, and that's how big the universe is because she it's expanding. She too. nailed it right there, right there. <laughs> So Matt, let's let's let's. Okay, I, yeah, we've we've got a few questions left. I think we can get through all of the ones I've got in front of me. So Rob Love, while we're talking about black holes, says, "Why are they called black holes? Why not black stars? After all, they're formed from stars. It seems like a fanciful name now, leads to questions and confusions, like what's inside a black hole." Right, Wendy, why not? In fact, we know it's condensed matter, but do we know it's condensed matter? Because is it still condensed matter once it's collapsed into a black hole? He's got black hole issues. <laughs> so Wendy, <laughs> yeah. so okay, short of a very fast. That, so, so, you know, if you imagine the Earth and you imagine throwing something up, it falls back down. If you throw it with enough velocity, it can escape from the Earth. And the same is true if you have enough matter, dense enough, um, what becomes a black hole is that it, it's so dense that not even light, the escape velocity is such that not even light can escape. So that's the nomer black hole came because no light can escape oh. from it. But we won't get into You fall in and light doesn't come out. Yeah, a whole, black hole. It's got to be better than Black Star, yeah. right? Because it's not, right. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. Guys, I think we just ran out of time. Damn, damn. All right. Wendy, it's been a delight. It's been too long. Uh, can we keep you on our Rolodex for, for future James Webb discoveries, cosmological discoveries? Sure. Excellent. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's nice to see you again after all these years. And yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. Matt, always good to have you there, man. It's great to be here. All right. All right. We're ending this episode of Cosmic Queries, Expanding Universe Edition. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. As always, keep looking up. 